0: Um, which uh, I don't think we've done before. But um, like you, probably, I've been reading some of the comments here on the side of Peter's latest book, I'm told. <coughs> how many of you
1: Oh, uh, this is my sixth solo published, yeah.
0: You
1: don't
0: look old enough, eh? And I know you're not, i know roughly how no old you are, but I used to teach with your father, who unfortunately can't be here uh, yeah. this morning. But we're looking forward very much to, to hearing you, Peter, on...
1: Well, what's the subject? Well, I'll, I'll introduce that. Yes, um, I'm going to start off with a bit of shameless self-promotion, but <laughs> then I'm going to, uh, to blend that in to giving you a little example from some of the work that I do with sixth form students in schools around the country uh, as a conference presenter for a Christian educational charity called the Damaris Trust, uh, who are based in Southampton, who I've been working with for the last ooh, 11 years now. Uh, in a return-to-home territory. So I was brought up and, and raised in Portsmouth, uh, left home and went to various universities and ended up doing student work in Leicester for a few years before moving down to Southampton to join the Damaris Trust. as there. My official title there is Philosopher-in-Residence. So I did um, philosophy degrees at a couple of universities and I now spend my time as a sort of itinerant uh, Christian philosopher stroke uh, speaker, stroke writer, uh, stroke uh, apologist, um, apologist of course being a terrible word for describing what I'm doing in the English language because people immediately think I go around apologizing for being a Christian, kind of, that's what the word now means. Of course originally it's the word um, underlying what we translate in 1 Peter 3.15 as um, always be ready to give an answer To those who ask you for a reason for the hope that you have Um, and the word translated there is giving an answer is apologia uh, in the Greek and it comes from um, what your lawyer would do for you in court. So really I see myself as someone called uh, to do everything that I can to try and uh, persuade people of the, the truth, the goodness, the beauty of Christianity and of being a disciple of Christ and I do that through writing and uh, lecturing and uh, doing a lot of reading books late at night underlining things so i can remember to quote them later and so on um so c.s lewis versus the new atheists uh, it's a book that jumps on two bandwagons at once uh in a good pr- propitious time for doing so as well the new atheist uh, movement of people like richard dawkins christopher hitchens uh, ac grayling dan dennett etc um really came to prominence as a sort of uh, uh, literary uh, movement after 9-11 um, particularly with publication of things like which Dawkins' uh, best-selling book The God Delusion or oh, Christopher Hitchens' um, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything um, these titles give you a, a bit of a handle on where these guys are coming from um, they've been described as atheists who um, think not only that belief in God is, is an intellectual mistake that belief in God is morally wrong Um, primarily I think because they completely misunderstand what it is to have faith in God according to new atheists having faith in anything means believing something without having any any good reason to believe it or indeed as uh, I think it was uh, Mark Twain once quipped faith is believing what you know ain't so Um, belief in the not only in the absence of, of evidence, but in the teeth of, of evidence to the contrary, as Richard Dawkins has, has claimed. And if you had that concept of what it was to have faith, I think you would say with people like Dawkins that you know, not only is obviously, you know, uh, there are obvious dangers in extremist fundamentalist religion of whatever stripe, But you would say that even the most uh, outwardly pleasant uh, tea-drinking, village-fate-opening C of E uh, vicardom uh, is a, a granting of permission in the public square to giving respect to the notion of having faith. Of not living up to your intellectual responsibilities, in other words, just being prepared to believe something that's, uh, you know, a stupendous, uh, on the face of it, incredulous uh, sort of way to behave, which leaves you open to being radicalised and being convinced to fly aeroplanes into buildings and things. Because, of course, if you're the sort of person who's prepared to believe amazing things without any reason to believe it... (laughs) I can easily convince you to do terrible things without any good reason to do them, you see. Um, But it is this misunderstanding of of faith that lies at the the, the heart of the New Atheist Movement. And so I was asked by my publisher to write this book. This year is the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death in 1963. Uh, He died, interestingly, on, on the very same day as Aldous Huxley and JFK. Um, And um, there was an American philosopher called Peter Kreeft who wrote a fascinating little dialogue book um, in which he had a dialogue in the afterlife between C.S. Lewis and JFK and Aldous Huxley uh, representing their different sort of views of the world. Anyway, this is the first book that I've had a a YouTube trailer video made for. Um, This is a use of new technology. I had a friend make this little advert for it, so I'll, I'll show you this little advert for the book and then I'll make a connection between um, thinking about the new atheists and some of the work that I do uh, in uh, schools uh, around the country.
0: We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden upon who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. This is Lewis. fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are. C.S. Lewis, who should
1: have known better, said... I know not how many of my publications you have read, Professor Dawkins, but I think you must construe
0: the nature of this trilemma. Let's take another look and make sure we've left no stone unturned. Argued so well until then. Can't predict the syllogism. Poor guy. Oh, sure about that. He never could quite do that. Tell me. Yeah. You're
1: chewing more than you bite off. No, my good chap. Please. Call me, jack That's precisely the problem with faith. Believing in something for which there isn't any evidence. On the gotcha. contrary. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted
0: in spite of your changing moods. Are sure nobody's explained that to you already? There is no good reason to believe in God. But then we must come to the very existence of reason itself, and whether that may constitute what you call evidence. If science can't give you the answer, philosophy won't, and certainly not religion. That's me. What do they teach them at these schools?
1: that gives you a good flavour of um, both the New Atheists and the sort of faux dialogue that I'm putting them into with C.S. Lewis. Um, Of course Lewis was a professor at Oxford at the same time as uh, people like A.J. Eyre and Strawson and so on, who were professors under whom today's New Atheists did their doctorates. They're they're one intellectual generation down the line and repeating a lot of the philosophical views that were current uh, in the Oxford of the first half of the the 20th century and that, um, frankly, academic philosophers of religion have moved uh, away from in the last last half of the 20th century uh, and these new atheists who tend to be journalists and scientists and so on now writing on religion, a topic outside of their academic expertise, um, are still sort of mired in these views that Lewis himself, as it says there at the end, rejected even whilst he was an atheist. And and his rejection of of these, particularly this sort of narrow view of knowledge that we had quoted there in, in the end of the video, that if science can't tell you the answer to a question, then nothing else is going to. Basically, that science is the only way to reliably know about reality. Um, that very narrow view of how we know about the world leads to a very narrow and constricted understanding of the world, of, of people, of uh, things like morality in particular. If science can't tell you the answer, you know, nothing else is going to. Well, science notoriously won't give you the answer to moral questions. Science will tell you whether or not you can institute a program of eugenics say, but science will not tell you whether or not you ought or ought not science describes the way that the world is in its workings, it doesn't prescribe how you should or should not behave uh, in the world, which is kind of one of the areas that we touch on in one of the conferences that I work at uh, in schools around the country. But I've designed for there we go, getting the technology to talk to each other. For the Demaris Trust. Come here. Uh. Come Good. So I'm going to do a, a quick whistle-stop tour through some of the highlights of a, a conference called Ethics in the Age of Science uh, in which I, I start off by making a, a, a clear distinction with the pupils between this idea of questions that science can answer and questions that it can't uh, and saying that there is this whole discipline of, of philosophy generally speaking that deals with the fundamental questions um, questions about things that you need to ...have thoughts on, even in order to do science. Um, And many... formers find it an entirely new thought... ...to their kind of way of looking and thinking at the world... ...to have pointed out to them, for example... ...that in order to do science... ...you have to think that there really is... ...a physical world. Okay, otherwise what are you studying? Okay, but that science is completely incapable... ...of giving you any evidence for thinking that there's a physical world. Hey, well, that's sure it's just obvious that there's a physical world. Well, yes it is. It, it's just obvious, but it's not something you know through science. I was like, well look, there, there it is. There, there's the table. I've touched it. Proof, you know. Well, now all you know is that you've had a certain experience you're interpreting that experience in terms of the existence of a, of a physical world that exists independently of you and your consciousness of it. There are plenty of p- people in the world who don't believe that. Are, you know, lots of people in Eastern countries who have a pantheistic worldview who would say that the physical world is an illusion. There isn't really any such thing as the physical world. It's all part of you know, the one, of Brahman, and so on. Um, and as far as the evidence of your senses goes, there's no way of choosing between those two ways of understanding what's going on when you have a certain experience of reality. I think, oh, so you have, you have to make these philosophical choices about how you interpret experience and some of these choices underlie our very ability to do what we think of in the West as science. Um, And that goes for moral issues as well. You couldn't have the social practice of doing science if people weren't generally agreed that you you ought to be honest in sharing the results of your experiments when you publish you didn't ought to defraud people when you publish your journal article as sometimes scientists do unfortunately um, but again it, they, people know that you shouldn't defraud when you're publishing your scientific results but you don't know that through science you, know, you have to know that in order to be a good scientist But the science isn't something that justifies that for you. So we hang a whole conference off a particular case about this chap up here, Stephen Mobley, uh, who um, killed someone in America in the 1990s and whose lawyers wanted to argue to the the court whilst he was waiting for execution on death row, um, that maybe he had something wrong with his brain chemistry, basically, that meant he was um, not guilty of murder because he had killed someone under the influence of aberrational brain chemistry. So that it wasn't his fault, they wanted to argue. Maybe he's got this genetic mutation uh, that means he's producing uh, lots of uh, dopamine in his brain and there's uh, evidence of a link between high levels of dopamine in male rat brains and aggressive behaviour. And maybe that's why he was aggressive, because he's got something out of kilter with his brain chemistry. Uh, not to go into any of the, the details and so we do this conference pointing out that w- what you make of that argument from the lawyers saying "But you know, it would be really unfair to punish him for something that it wasn't his fault if he's got this brain chemistry problem then maybe it wasn't his fault so we ought to test him before executing him what you make of that argument in part depends upon how sound you, th- you think that the science that those lawyers are appealing to is what is the evidence of a correlation between high levels of dopamine in rat brains and violence? Can you extrapolate that to human behaviour? You know, put two rats together in an enclosed space at the same time every day, as some scientists did in one study, that the rats will fight each other, and they noticed through measuring their brain chemicals that the amount of dopamine in the rat brains went up by about 70% in the hour before the fight that the rats had come to expect every day. But you know, is, can you just extrapolate that to human behavior? Haven't you ever noticed two male humans get into a lift together, quite an enclosed space, go up several floors of a building and come out completely unscathed? Um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, there, are, there are questions to ask there um, about the science and so on, and the interpretation of that. But also, what you make of the lawyer 's argument will depend upon certain philosophical concepts that you have about the general nature of reality about what is a person, about what do you think about the relationship between free will uh, moral responsibility uh, and so on and we We try and sort of give the the students a sort of a puzzle to wrestle through as it were i don 't come on as you know i'm the christian and i'm going to argue to you here's my argument for why it's sensible to to not have a materialistic worldview but to have at least some kind of of supernatural understanding of of reality of people in particular that we're not just material automata Um, rather i try and give them a process to work through where they have to wrestle with that with that quandary and make presentations at the end of the conference on what they think. How would they respond to Stephen Mobley's lawyers making that argument, but justifying their response in terms of thinking in uh, worldview categories? Um, let's see what I mean here. We work through this process. Why? The one thing I do sort of argue in the conference is that Here we have what seems to be a very abstract philosophical question: What do you think is the the nature of reality at large? Are you a materialist, someone who thinks only that you know it's just all just atoms in the void, or do you think there's something that's true about reality that's not captured by that sort of materialistic, naturalistic view of things? What's your view of humanity? What is a person? Uh, And how do these fit together? If If you're a materialist and you say the only kind of things that are real are the kind of things studied within the natural sciences, well then, when you answer the question, what is a person, you're going to have to say, well, a person is nothing but a particular chunk of material reality with a particular material history. That's what a person has to be. If you're a supernaturalist of some kind, it's at least open to you to say well, maybe people have souls. Maybe they don't, but maybe they do. Um, That question is still open if there can be more to reality than just the material. And these have knock-on effects to your view of freedom and responsibility and how the the lawyers are arguing uh, and so on. And I, I just leave that with them to try and present a consistent understanding of reality at the end of the conference. And it is fascinating to see when I get my mark scheme out at the end and show the students, reflect back to them how they've presented, the number of students who will come up and say, OK, our, our little group, we decided we were going to argue from a, from a materialistic viewpoint. So we're materialists, we're naturalists, we don't think there's any evidence of God or anything supernatural. Uh, and a person is, is, is just a biological machine of some kind, and uh, we think Stephen Moby's guilty of murder and you should hang him. It's his fault and he should pay for his crimes. And I say, okay, you've you told me these and, and sort of those seem to fit together. Yeah, if you're a materialist, I agree. You've got to be this, have a material understanding of a person. And then you've said, and we think he had moral responsibility and here's what we should do with him. And there's a whole sort of column on the Mark Scheme missing from their presentation, which is the column, show me how what you say about this is consistent with what you say about this. Why isn't there a contradiction there? And I actually, in terms of of making them face up to that problem, I give them a quotation from Richard Dawkins. (laughs) I give them an argument from... The atheists themselves saying, if you believe in materialism, then it doesn't make any sense to believe in free will. So it's not me as the Christian coming on and saying, I think as a Christian that the, you know, the only sensible way to believe in free will is to have some sort of supernatural understanding of the world. I'm saying, the atheists argue that the only sensible way to believe in free will and moral responsibility is to have some kind of supernatural understanding of the world. It's just that they're prepared, some of them, to be consistent with their atheism and say, well, okay, I've got to bite that bullet and try and work through the consequences of denying the apparent reality, what must be an illusion, of our freedom and moral responsibility. Um, And if students are prepared to bite that bullet... Well, you know, we'll see how how that works out with them through everyday life. <laughs> Try. And sometimes I tell them, okay, next next time someone really annoys you in class or whatever, just just keep saying to yourself, they didn't have a choice. It's not their fault. <laughs> um, see how they live with that. But yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, some students, some students even go through the conference, and this is lovely when it happens, and they they do say things occasionally like yes sir uh, we started out wanting to argue that we were naturalists and, and so on but we realised that that's not consistent with holdi- holding Stephen Mobley responsible and so we've decided to rethink our worldview. view the, the intuition that what he did was wrong trumps our assumption that m- a materialistic worldview is the only sensible one to have which the vast majority of, of students by that age seem to share um, but I let them grapple with the dilemma that's kind of posed by working through these things. Um, let me, uh, we use various games and exercises through the thing to sort of illustrate the difference between different worldviews and, and uh, what knock-on effects those, those have. and show them you have scientists from, who completely agree about what science tells you about reality. Like Francis Crick, who was an atheist, and Francis Collins, who's a Christian, both of them working in human genomics, um, but both well, one of them's an atheist, one of them's a a, a Christian. And uh, let me show you this quote from Richard Dawkins that we work up to at the end, because it's quite a dizzy. And you'll see in this quotation how Dawkins is working through that set of categories that we have on the, um, on the arrow that we, we work through with the students together. Here we go. Richard Dawkins is, of course, well-known as a naturalist, a materialist. That's his understanding of the basic nature of reality. There's, there's nothing beyond the natural. So when he then comes to talking about what human nature, what is a human being. He says this, he says, human brains, which for him is the same thing as the human mind, there's no distinction to be drawn there, of course, so though they may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. Because the human mind just is a brain, and a brain is just a collection of physical things governed by the laws of physics. Okay? When a computer malfunctions, we don't punish it. We track down the problem and we fix it. Isn't the murderer, like Stephen Mobley, just a machine with a defective component? Defective upbringing, defective education, defective genes, which is what Stephen Mobley's lawyers wanted to argue in this particular case that we we keep coming back to. Concepts like blame and responsibility are bandied about freely where human wrongdoers are concerned, but doesn't a mechanistic view of the nervous system of what a person is make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? Any crime is in principle to be blamed on antecedent conditions acting through the accused's physiology. It's not the accused who does the crime, it's nature acting through the laws of physics, through this particular chunk of nature. Why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? Okay. Why do that? So he's, he's really arguing this. Look, purely physical things don't have free will, what philosophers call libertarian free will, the kind of freedom that we intuitively think of As being a a prerequisite for moral responsibility. Being able to choose between alternative options. Because they just behave according to the, the laws of nature. Efficient causality and so on. But secondly, human beings are purely physical things. Physical nothing but. It's been called nothing buttery as a view of people. Therefore, humans don't have free will of the kind that gives them moral responsibility. Are they prepared to pay that price in order to retain these views? Because to be consistent in saying, as most of the students do want to say, whatever worldview they come from, people are sometimes at least Uh, at least in part, responsible for their behaviour, you have to reject at least one of these two claims. And I leave it to the students to say which they're going to reject in order to be consistent. Give me a consistent story of why you're going to treat Stephen Moby in a particular way. And grappling with that quandary does sometimes sort of lever people into rethinking where they're coming from. Um, and we do it not by coming in and sort of, you know, preaching or arguing at them, I'm the Christian and here's why you should agree with me. But rather through, th- through saying, you know, I'm going to help you, equip you with some, some categories of thinking clearly about things. I'm going to explain to you this argument from a well-known atheist on the matter. And if you're, you know, if you're a materialist, and you want to disagree with Dawkins, that's fine. I'm looking forward to seeing in your presentations how you link up saying material reality is all there is, people are just chunks of matter, and wanting to claim that Dawkins argument is wrong somewhere. Tell me where it's wrong. How do you square the circle? Uh, leave them to wrestle with that and sometimes that affects changes in their thinking and sometimes it doesn't but at least and this is one of the major things I think these conferences do we kind of puncture the assumption that lots of young people have that that particularly an assumption that's sort of been capitalised on by new atheists like Dawkins that religious people are people who believe incredible things for no good reason and haven't thought through their view of the world. And here is a Christian coming in and helping them, even if they're a, someone who agrees with Dawkins, to actually think through more carefully what they think. And that does a lot of undermining of their sort of prejudice uh, against religious people. Anyway, I've said quite enough to fill my time. Um, if you want a copy of these, this is, this is the plug. They're 12.99 in the shops, um, but I'll sell it to you today for a tenner. It's a nice round number. Um, but they are available to order online from Amazon and all the usual uh, places as well. Um, but um, I'm very open to um, having a few questions about any of that or other stuff that I do with students and and so on.
0: So, kill my curiosity. What did the Supreme Court judge in mm. Stephen case?
1: Well, this was fascinating. What actually happened was that the Stephen Moby's parents, who had hired these lawyers who made this argument, sacked the lawyers. Hey, that's a. I'm interest
0: as <laughs> a member of the legal profession. Right. I'm
1: interested in what I say. We think the 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 thought process was this because it seems very strange for the for the parents to sack the lawyers who are trying to defend <laughs> their son the defense of course was was about this this um inheritable genetic problem that the, the lawyers were pointing to it was a, a heritable problem inheritable problem um on the male chromosome um, and we think the thought process was if we say okay we're going to relieve Stephen Mobley of responsibility for his actions uh, by saying he has this genetic problem, then what about all the other males in Stephen Mobley's family? How should we treat these? Are, are they you know, like, going to be treated now as natural-born killers? Because although they haven't, haven't killed anyone yet, they're not responsible if they do. They're like time bombs waiting to go on. You know. um, <laughs> so this process of, 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 of thinking, we think, sort of scuppered the whole argument. And as many students point out, suppose, supposing Stephen Mobley did have a problem where he's not getting rid of the dopamine that his name, brain naturally produces, and that does give him, say, at least a greater propensity towards being violent. Well, if he has this problem, he would know through the whole of his life things like I tend to get really angry quickly in, in stressful situations. I fly off the handle quite quickly. And should have thought to himself, the particular crime that he committed, he robbed a Domino's pizza store in order to get money and ended up pumping all the bullets in his revolver that he'd taken with him into the brain casing of the manager of the pizza store at point blank range so a lot of the kids point out hey, if this guy did have this problem okay, in the stressful situation in the store maybe his brain chemistry kicks in and he does something that he's less responsible for say, than you or I would be but shouldn't he have known it would be a bad idea for me to take a loaded revolver into a stressful situation (laughs) it's a bit like saying okay if someone killed someone through a drunk driving incident, it's no defence for them to say, it wasn't my fault. I was drunk at the time. I wasn't responsible for my actions. (laughs) Because they can be responsible for the fact that they've put themselves in that situation whereby they're not responsible for their actions. They're responsible at one remove. Um, And a similar thing might be be said to apply in, in similar cases if you know so what actually happened is he the guy was executed and he was never his brain chemistry was never tested they never did do a genetic test on him but i don't tell the kids that because i don't want to predispose their 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 judgement one way or, or the other on the case and and of course that then opens up they all want to talk about the, the ethics of capital punishment and so on like that's a whole other conference you know yeah <laughs> How many schools are you going asked to in a given year? Well, uh, we've got about half a dozen conference presenters dotted around the country who cover sort of different areas and, I, and then I kind of mop up anything that anyone else can't do as well. And until about a year, two years ago, I used to do about 30 conferences a year myself and then other presenters would have done perhaps a few less than that each. Um, recent sort of budget cuts and pressure on RE as a subject area. Um, Minister, may or may not be u turning over baccalaureate rules at the moment, which might play into our favour, we shall see, um, has sort of put a bit of a squash on it. Um, but I'm, I've got a conference on the 15th this month, for instance, but it, it's, it's down to more sort of during term time, maybe one a month rather than one a week at the moment. Um, but we're still getting in there. We've been getting in there for... A decade and um, we have a lot of return customers and so on and uh, occasionally a teacher moves to another school and brings glad tidings that we've got a good group we can come in hire in for do a, a cheap half day with our students that will tick lots of curriculum boxes for us and <laughs> yeah <laughs> did you
0: have um, as many state schools asking for these conferences as
1: it's, yeah, it's mainly state schools, actually, yes, because um, we, we come in under the auspices of, of the, the general requirement to give religious and philosophy and ethics education to sixth form students, irrespective of what subjects they've chosen. Um, so there is a requirement still on schools to deliver RE in some way, shape or form, and a lot of schools will do that by by having a couple of days in the year set aside for it rather than giving sixth formers you know one half hour lesson a week throughout the whole term on a subject that they've not chosen to study um it just makes it a, a bit easier to have a, a bit of a different day and often we 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 coming into the schools when the schools in complete uproar because they choose to do it in the in the week where everybody's out doing field trips or you know lots of groups coming in and things um a lot of schools use this sort of during induction week as well when the students are just coming up to sixth form and it's like you know okay you're big kids now you need to think and are more thinking more towards sort of going to university and and so on um thinking in a bit more of a structured disciplined way um so there's there's various sort of practical and um, curriculum boxes that we're we're providing for by doing this yeah
0: do you
1: ever run conference for adults? You work on class basis, Yeah, very occasionally. Um, we, the, we've got this conference on what's called Ethics in an Age of Science and there's another conference uh, called That's a Good Argument which basically teaches people the basic skills of how arguments should and shouldn't work and gets them applying that to what they think about the existence of God. <laughs> Whatever they think, they, they can express that, but I'm going to judge them at the end on how well they use the reasoning tools that we, we've taught them um, and um, Nick Pollard and myself have done that event as a training event in a church uh, in London a couple of years ago for, for adults <coughs> uh, and that seemed to go down quite well um, so um, yeah they're certainly doable We're, not that we get asked that often but uh, yeah Peter thank
0: thanks for very much around. thank you um, was it a, a book or a play many years ago that was called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm-hmm. Virginia Woolf being a novelist of the mid 20th century. Well, Peter, as he's told us, has written several books, and I think of them all with the title Who's Afraid of Richard Dawkins? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Peter's not the usual sort of speaker we have at these breakfast meetings. But I think it's opened us a door and a window to an aspect of Christian ministry and discipleship and sharing that we might not otherwise be aware of. Most of us were at school an awful long time ago. And the schools that now are are terribly different (coughs) from the ones we attended as boys and as adolescents. Even the ones that some of you taught at, I suspect. So I'm very grateful, Peter, for coming. David just had a word with me. We're going to buy one of these for the church library. Um, just as a, a question, for how many, how many of you recognize the name C.S. Lewis? Yeah, lots. Oh, good, yes. I, just, I honestly didn't know. When I was a student in the mid-1950s and in the Christian Union at university, we were all fed C.S. Lewis. Like uh, Bread and Milk for Breakfast, you know, we had to read C.S. Lewis, Uh, and although he died in 1963, uh, as Peter shows in this book, he's not a man of a former generation. He is terribly, terribly relevant to the arguments going on amongst these uh, people that you read about in newspapers, very relevant to those arguments, and this is worth a personal buy. I have got my copy. I was given one. And it's good stuff like everything else
1: that Peter has written. Peter, thank you very, very
0: much uh, for coming. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, um... And God bless us all and give us a good day. A moment of prayer together.